We begin Eyewitness News at 4 with protesters taking to the streets of Los Angeles for a second day after the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. Last week, in the first major vote of its kind since Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, nearly 60% of Kansas voters chose to protect abortion rights in their state constitution. However, over 20 states are planning abortion restrictions or already have them in place. Just last Friday, Indiana lawmakers passed a near total ban on the procedure, becoming the first state to limit abortion following the Supreme Court decision. Here's Dr. Katrina Mitchell, a local breast surgeon, lactation consultant, and perinatal mental health provider on why the formation of a citywide women's health task force is more important than ever. So, as we know, in late June of this year, the decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. Afterwards, many states instituted their own abortion bans, some under trigger laws. As a provider of women's health care, how have similar restrictions impacted patients? Um, for instance, in your op-ed in the Santa Barbara Independent, you talked about some time you spent in Tanzania. Yeah, I mean, certainly working in the developing world for several years, um, you know, and also in in other countries at different times. Um, I think you you see what happens when there isn't widespread access to, um, you know, things like reproductive health care. Um, and, you know, it's really, it's, it's a dangerous situation for, for women um, in terms of the safety of the care that they receive um, or not receive and, and the consequences of that. And I know you're also a provider of um, perinatal mental health. How has access to abortion impacted the mental well-being of patients both before and after pregnancy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you can't even quantify the stress um, and the life changes that can occur um, because of lack of access to an abortion that a woman needs. Um, I think you also, you know, what people don't realize is that pregnancy is not benign in any kind of way. You know, it, it, changes someone's body forever, their mind forever. Um, it's not as easy as um, just saying, you know, you, you give up a baby for adoption. There's a lot of um, mental and physical health risks of pregnancy um, that can actually result in death. Um, so I think it's, it's not just about, um, you know, creating safe access to abortion care, but also understanding the importance of needing that care um, in terms of uh, the um, trajectory of uh, women's health in general. And in your op-ed, you mentioned that Planned Parenthood is the only place to get an elective abortion in Santa Barbara. And I actually just read that um, last month, Cottage Hospital announced a reversal of a nearly two-decade-old unofficial ban on VBACs or vaginal birth after cesarean sections. So in your opinion, why might hospitals be hesitant to offer certain types of reproductive health services? How can this hesitancy affect patients? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I will say, um, you know, after speaking with Planned Parenthood uh, more extensively, you know, they more than anyone have been prepared for this decision and, um, you know, are do have the capacity 
to accept patients from out of state and provide for our community. Um, so I think that's kind of an important clarification um, in terms of the things I was writing. Um, it was more, I think, writing from a philosophical perspective of, you know, is this is this enough? Should should this be something? Should this just be primary care for every obstetrical provider? You know, every hospital. Um, why would people have to go to you know um, a certain location to get a medical abortion? Um, you know, and that's kind of a, a bigger question, obviously, of feelings and politics surrounding um, women's health care. Um, so I think it's important to make that point that that Planned Parenthood is equipped um, and has the capacity and has done a really great job of anticipating the influx. But in general, it's kind of our communities. I think, you know, we have to be careful about how we are, um, you know, how patients are perceiving access and, and, what, and what do people know about um, where to get help and what happens if you, um, yeah, why don't we have, why is this not a common, a more commonplace um, set of um, services that people can provide? And I think, you know, as far as the VBAC situation at Cottage, you know, again, I think it's just sort of one piece of a bigger puzzle. Where are we with the vision for women's health in this county? And where are we compared to other communities of our size or even, you know, larger cities? I mean, even if we are a smaller coastal town ourselves, our entire county makes up a larger patient population. And in fact, you know, we are, could, we are the, between LA and San Francisco, all the way up the coast, um, you know, I think we'd have a real opportunity to, you know, listen to the community and mobilize and kind of uh, develop something that could be really a, you know, a center for the entire central coast region. And, um, you know, I grew up in the Central Valley, and I said, if you know, the Central Valley can have women's centers where, you know, you can get all acts, you know, care, you can get lots of different types of women's health care in one place. And it's also just a sort of centerpiece for the community in terms of, um, you know, it says a lot that we care about women's health and we're not invisible and we don't have bans on things that are standard elsewhere. Um, again, I think it's more just, uh, there's all these little pieces of the puzzle and, um, it would be really nice to have, um, you know, a, a working group or task force or, um, you know, a, a future where we are working side by side with Planned Parenthood. We're offering, um, coordinated services. So there's, you know, not duplication of services, but there's not holes in services as well. Right, so this is a good time to really dive into this Women's Healthcare Task Force you proposed. Um, a similar national level group was established by the Secretary of Health and Human Services earlier this year. And we've been mentioning this op-ed a lot, but first I'd love to hear more about why you wrote this opinion piece and um, sort of what your intentions were going into it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it actually started 
um, with me thinking about my experience as a woman and as a woman receiving healthcare in this community and as a mother and as a, you know, a physician who provides women's healthcare and how, you know, what I want to speak out for in terms of my patients and how I want my son to grow up. And, you know, it's exactly what I wrote in the editorial that I was thinking about, you know, this world for him is going to be completely different than the world that I grew up in and the things we took for granted. This is now a completely different world for the rest of the lives of this generation. Um, And, you know, I think it's really important to model um, advocacy. And, you know, I always say, I, I hope I'm raising a feminist. And I actually took him to the Chicks concert on Friday night because I said, I, you know, I won his first concert. He's almost seven. And I said, you know what? He, this kid loves music. And so his first concert can be a feminist one. Um, and I, I, I think honestly, that's where I started with uh, my thoughts on this because, you know, everything with my work too, our, my work is a big part of our life. And I think it's important for him to understand that my work doesn't compete with him, but it's, it's, you know, a part of who I am. It's a part of who he is. Um, and so I think just from there, you know, I thought about what do I want? What do I want for my patients? What do I want for him? What do I want for myself? For people who don't have the voice that I have, you know, as a privileged white woman who, you know, has a medical degree and I have some voice that that other women don't have. Um, And yeah, and I guess I just sort of started from there, started to think more about our town and, and the things I hear from patients and what I would hope. For you know what I think we have the capacity to do here, and it and it seems like this is a moment when we need to mobilize and you know turn something that is far far from ideal in terms of the Supreme Court decision and turn it into something that can be really positive in terms of, of change and vision for the future for our community. And this proposed task force would include. Um community leaders, healthcare providers, and stakeholders. Could you tell us more about the structure of this task force or how its members would be selected? I don't think it's necessarily would be something that I would envision as selection, but more just self-identifying and, um, you know, in terms of community leaders, people that, you know, politicians, um, people who are leaders in healthcare, um, people who are leaders in development and strategic planning, who have, you know, that kind of background for helping understand how you would actually take all these thoughts and visions and, and dreams of the healthcare providers in this town. And it's, you know, I see it as a multi-pronged effort with everyone using their own knowledge base and their own strengths and, and background to Kind of contribute to building something. Certainly, I mean, I think a big part of it is stakeholders and all the women of this town from, you know, obviously UCSB and, and, you know, beginning in high schools, right? Like a lot of this stuff starts even with education of, of kids. And 
you know, when you talk about the reproductive life cycle of women from, you know, basically puberty to menopause, there's unique needs of this is not just about, you know, abortion and obstetrical care, but there are many unique needs of women going through menopause um, in terms of, you know, things that don't seem major to other people, but can really have a huge impact on the quality of life of women, including bone density, um, you know, significant mood changes, and really expanding support for mental health at different critical time points in the reproductive life cycle. So, um, you know, it's really more me thinking about how would we even begin to, to have discussions about this and what would be the next step and just really anyone that is interested that, you know, has ideas to show up to the table because I think it's important to hear everyone's voices. And what are some of the gaps in reproductive health care that you'd hope the task force to address and how are these gaps impacting patients in Santa Barbara? Yeah, I mean, obviously, access to care is a huge one. And I think that's where that development side of things comes in and not the actual healthcare itself. So, you know, we need, obviously, far more obstetrical providers, far more mental health care providers. Um, you know, even in the oncology world, you know, my primary specialty is as a breast cancer surgeon and, you know, just the challenge with access to care um, for breast cancer, you know, we're, we're doing our best and, you know, I work for Ridley Tree and, um, you know, we have lots and lots of resources and incredible patient support programs, but even still, you know, we're, we're always, we always have lots of patients to serve. And so, um, I guess all of that to say is that in terms of attracting healthcare providers to our town for whatever aspect of it, we would be looking for with women's health. I think that development kind of side of things can help identify how we can provide affordable housing for healthcare providers and you know the the things that are that become more prohibitive about um, living in our region and helping kind of mitigate the the cost of living here or relocating here um, I think that's that's a big one but I think in terms of the actual you know where we have unmet needs um, certainly mental health for women is a is a huge one there's mental health providers in town, but sometimes there's limited access because of cost and not having uh, the ability to use insurance, having people who specialize specifically in women's uh, reproductive psychiatry, i.e. Um, people who are prescribers of medications. You know, I think we, we do a really good job with therapists here in this town, but uh, having that partnership between physician providers or specialized nurse practitioners, um, that that would be a place to develop. I mean, obviously, the town has been talking about changes in obstetrical care. For context, in May of this year, Dr. Melissa Drake, a local physician who actually delivered Meghan Markle's daughter, announced she'd be closing her practice. Other OBGYNs were then tasked with accommodating an influx of patients, leading to over 500 new prenatal appointments in the coming months. It's kind of, it's, it's building an entire system of care. So one obstetrician leaving or even two, you know, it doesn't create such a crisis, but there's actually a foundation that supports the movement within that foundation.
Yeah, I think those are, you know, the the ones that I, I guess I think about the mental health component so much because of, you know, I interface with that so much with my lactation patients. Um, and also my, my breast cancer patients, you know, it's another major, major, major life change that is extraordinarily, you know, stressful and scary for people, um, despite the fact that we have really incredible and hopeful treatments for breast cancer and people generally do well. It's still a very scary experience to be diagnosed with cancer at any stage of your life. So I think that's another aspect of oncopsychiatry care. And obviously all the surgical specialties, urogynecology and breast radiology really standing on its own, you know, as coordinated, just people get their pap smears and then they go right across the hall and get their mammograms. So it's really a sort of comprehensive package of, of women's health care. Yeah, in your op-ed, you had discussed this one-stop shop for women's and reproductive health services. But um, that's a great point you brought up, you know, um, addressing and tackling the housing crisis so we can bring in more more experts and more providers to the area. And um, switching focus here, even though a majority of Americans believe abortion should be legal, as demonstrated through polling and by the recent Kansas abortion vote, why do you think some elected officials are either slow to act or downright refuse? That is um, a good question. I guess, obviously, it comes down to, you know, people wanting to appease donors to their campaigns because as a physician, it's just honestly hard for me to even wrap my head around how this is possibly a political issue when it's a healthcare issue. Just coming from that perspective, trying to put my mind um, in the place of someone that is not wanting to speak out in favor of protecting the the health and safety of women, it just it just seems like a basic fundamental given. I, I don't know. Um, I guess to me, just looking every day, you know, living in Tanzania for all those years and and seeing what happens when you don't have access to reproductive health care services, um, you know, widely available in a population and how devastating that is for women and their children and, you know, the entire the entire community, obviously. It's not just women, it's, it's everyone. Um, everyone's impacted by this in some kind of way. So I guess I, I just don't know because to me, I just see it in black and white terms of it's healthcare, and, and when you don't provide adequate healthcare, things don't go well. And in your opinion, why is access to reproductive healthcare more important than ever? Because I think it's it's not just about healthcare. I mean, well, it is. It's it's about healthcare, obviously. Like I. Um, had said, but um, because it it also reflects on, you know, physician autonomy and this idea that now the government is telling physicians how to practice medicine. And that's such a sort of sacred space. So I think that that's part of it is respecting our ability to use our, you know, decades of training to protect our patients and help make decisions that are right for each individual. 
But I think it's also just, again, it's on a, on a bigger sense, it's about the world we're living in and respect for everyone, despite their gender or sexual orientation or, you know, religion or color of their skin. And so it's sort of a bigger picture of where we are in the world and where we're going and what kind of future we're going to have that, like I said, it's just mind boggling to me that I grew up with access to this care. And my son is actually going to grow up in a world where, you know, if we lived in a different state, and, you know, if he had a girlfriend who got pregnant, it's such a mind boggling turn backwards in time that it's hard to even imagine this is real. And I know we've covered a lot today, but um, is there anything else you'd like to add or any final thoughts you have for our listeners? You know, I think what I would love to is to have our medical community interface more with UCSB and, you know, really use all of the energy and, and youth of, of UCSB and, yeah, the energy of having this, this wonderful university in our town and really bring that uh, much more to the table um, in terms of serving our entire patient population here and just the perspectives of women and people at, at different times in their lives and, and how we all could help something really amazing grow for, for women's healthcare here. You can find Dr. Mitchell's op-ed in the Santa Barbara Independent. Our music today is Ether Ridge and Tall Tell, both by Blue Dot Sessions, and Please Listen Carefully by Jazar. The story features audio from ABC7 and EWTN News. Thanks again to Dr. Katrina Mitchell, and thank you for listening. With KCSB News, I'm Joyce Chi.